This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Crude oil, certainly, and the energy markets, as Charlie just mentioned, one of our big stories, oil slammed by a price war. Both Russia and Saudi Arabia uh, stood poised to flood the market with cheap crude oil. It comes at a rough time because you've got the coronavirus spurring the first contraction in demand since 2009. So we are getting squeezed, certainly, on the energy markets and really the overall market universe from all angles. Ellen Wald is the perfect person to talk to about the energy markets, president of Transversal Consulting, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. Uh, She's also a Bloomberg opinion contributor. She joins us on the phone from Jacksonville, Florida. She's also author of the book Saudi Inc. on the history of Aramco in Saudi Arabia. Ellen, what happened this weekend? What happened this weekend is that Saudi Arabia and Russia finally um, caved to their differences and parted ways. This was a rift that had been growing for some time, and you could see it in the way that Russia was never really adhering to the production cuts that it had agreed to. And then at the last OPEC meeting in December, Saudi Arabia had to promise to make and did make some really significant production cuts when Russia was essentially agree, agreed to, to not cut its own production. And then uh, everything could have continued to limp along except coronavirus came and Saudi Arabia and OPEC wanted a significant response, particularly because Saudi Arabia was feeling the pinch. In fact, it's um, it's uh, the the oil that China was buying from it was cut by about 30 percent. And uh, the problem was that when they went into these negotiations, Russia knew that Saudi Arabia was getting hit, and it its position was basically: if you're the one that's getting hit from falling Chinese demand, then you take the brunt of these cuts, and, and we're not going to. And Saudi Arabia finally stood up and said no. Hmm. And then they each walked out. And the world is paying quite a price for this today, and certainly uh, the global markets. Why is that? I mean, remind us, this is a very basic question, Ellen, but remind us why the world cares so much about the price of oil. Well, the world has to care a lot about the price of oil because the world still runs on oil. Uh, oil production is about 100 million barrels per day. China is a pretty big portion of that. It imports about 10 uh, million barrels of oil per day. That's about 10% of global production. And in the United States, we like to think about it from the perspective of we're the world's largest consumer, but we're also now the world's largest producer. And so we need to be thinking about this drop in oil prices for more than just, hey, low gasoline prices, but oil production is a significant component of our economy, and this is really going to hit hard uh, in areas that uh, where fracking is a big part of the economy. Right. I do wonder what kind of shakeup you know, this will have among the U.S. shale players uh, or the global economy overall. I'm assuming that some of those weaker players, they just won't be able to exist. Yeah, and and that's this is a particularly difficult time uh, to have a price and production war going on between Russia and Saudi Arabia. Um, it's not unexpected. Times of high tensions can certainly lead to this, but there are players in this shale uh, area where 
they were really on the margin, have a lot of debt, weren't doing so great in terms of financing, and this is going to push them over the edge. Right. Now, the upside is that if you're on the hunt to uh, acquire some, some assets, you may find a very good deal out there. The assets aren't going away. The oil is still there. Uh, the oil will still be needed. It just might not be needed in the near future. We're talking about a year, 2020, where global demand for oil may actually decline. Uh, we were already looking at basically no demand growth. Right. But now we're looking at, at uh, an actual situation where we may see a decline. But that doesn't mean that that will continue for 2021, 2022, and so on. Ellen, how much of this is just about the oil and energy markets, and how much of this is about geopolitical relationships? And I do think about alliances either China has with the Middle East or China has with Russia, because China gets a boost, as you wrote in your column for Bloomberg Opinion, from these low oil prices, right? They've got to import their oil. Exactly. This is basically like a stimulus plan for China. Um, China is looking at a situation where, um, you know, it's, it's going to have some economic problems getting, getting things back going after the coronavirus stops to be a significant drain on its economy. And essentially, Russia and Saudi Arabia have handed it a stimulus plan. They said, well, you know, that 10 million barrels of oil you need to import every day, um, you know, now it's going to be a lot, lot cheaper. And because before this happened, you know, we could have been in a situation where China, you know, has to import a lot of food, they have to import a lot of energy, and uh, if they were in a very bad economic situation because of the drop in trade, what were they going to choose? Now they've basically made oil a non-issue. They can get their oil and they can get it cheaply. And Saudi Arabia and Russia are going to fight over who can sell China more oil and at cheaper prices. Ellen, 30 seconds left. Just debunk the, hey, oil is cheap, gas is cheap, good for consumers argument. Uh, well, it is good for consumers, but only if you want to go somewhere right now. And there are a lot of people who don't want to go anywhere right now. So it is it is essentially good for consumers, but for producers, this is really, really bad. And at a certain point, um, it being bad for producers can also make it bad for consumers. Crude oil futures right now down 24%. Well, and your five worst performers in the S&P are all in the energy patch. Uh, marathon down more than 50%. Ellen Wald, uh, fantastic. Thank you so much for that context. Really uh, the perfect way to start our show. She is the president of Transversal Consulting and also a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion. If you want to understand this, check out her column on the Bloomberg Today. She joined us on the phone from Jacksonville, Florida. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so we do want to talk a little bit more about what's going on in the bond market as we've been talking about the entire yield curve for U.S. bonds falling below 1% for the first time in history. This is after an all-out price war between the world's biggest oil exporters triggered an unprecedented global bond rally. Meantime, the Fed lifted the amount of temporary cash it's willing to provide markets as pressure intensifies for the U.S. Central Bank to tackle the risk of a worldwide credit crunch. There is so much to talk about with Lindsay Piegs, the chief economist at Stiefel Financial, on the phone in in Chicago. So, Lindsay, nice to check in with you. Recession, are we in one? Well, I don't know if we're in recession at this point, but we certainly see some of the downside risks that could potentially tip the U.S. economy into recession. Now, remember, some of the data that we're still seeing suggests that we were on relatively moderate footing, at least in hindsight, coming into the new year. The brunt of the pain, however, from the impact of the coronavirus, from the 
disruptions to the global supply chain aren't likely to hit the data until the second quarter. So it's unlikely that we really have a, a true sense of what's happening to the U.S. economy until the April or even the May data come to fruition. So it's going to be quite some time. Right now, it's a lot of uh, guessing. It's a lot of estimating. But we do see a significant slowdown in some of the key parts of the economy, which if continued, if the depth and duration of this impact extends, we very much could see a recession. Our base case scenario is one quarter of negative growth, so enough to push us in below 0% GDP, but not enough for that technical recession. So, Lindsay, talk to us about the Fed's role here, the Federal Reserve, obviously not dealing with a lot of ammo, not coming to this uh, fight with a lot of ammo, <laughs> to, to say the least. What are, what are they thinking about? What are they sort of turning over in their meetings, in your estimation? Well, I think it is a little frustrating because when we look back going into the Great Recession, when we look back going into the 2001 downturn, the Fed came to the table with 400, 500 basis points of potential support for the economy. This time around, as you mentioned, we were talking about 150 basis points. So the Fed was already providing extremely accommodative conditions. Now, with the emergency move, the Fed said in part that was to ensure further accommodation, but also also to help boost confidence. Now, it's unlikely that with rates already so low, an additional 50 basis points is going to have a meaningful impact on boosting investment and consumption, as it typically would when the economy begins to slow. But we do think that this increased preparedness, increased commitment to uh, further support the economy could help boost confidence on the margin, or at least that's the intention, helping to sort of slow these knee-jerk reactions on a day-to-day -day basis to incoming data of the coronavirus. Now, obviously, today, buck to that trend, but the Fed is hoping that increased assistance to the marketplace will help provide a calm and help provide a floor. If, however, we get to the March meeting and the Fed decides to lower rates further, however, growth continues to deteriorate as we go into the second quarter, the question is, what additional stimulus does the Fed have left? They can, um, they can provide explicit forward guidance. We can move into some sort of operation twist program or large-scale asset purchases. We also have negative interest rates, which are on the table, but the Fed has most often moved away from those. So we we're certainly we'll be talking about non-traditional metrics, given that the Fed has such l very little wiggle room before we hit that lower zero bound. How do you see the virus, Lindsay? Is it is something that once we have the parameters around it and understand, you know, that we see, start to see some containment, kind of get on the other side of it, when we get to that point, can we assume that we'll get a V-shaped recovery or not necessarily? Not necessarily. Even if we start to have control of the virus, depending on how widespread the impact is and how many cases we're talking about, it may take us some time before confidence comes back to the market, before people feel comfortable traveling, before people return to offices and, and factories. So I, I do think that depending on the duration on the front end, that will very much impact the recovery on the back end. The faster we can get this contained, the more likely we will see a V or even a short U-shaped recovery. But the longer this takes, the more likely it is that the extended recovery period is, is quite a bit longer. All right, Lindsay Piegzo, thank you so much. Chief Economist for Stiefel Financial, joining us on the phone from Chicago. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. 
on Bloomberg Radio. So it is the worst day since Lehman for emerging market credit spreads. Meantime, the U.S. yield curve inside 1%, sounding the alarm for global bond markets. Uh, and according to our Peter Coy, the U.S. may already be in a recession. That was a story out on Friday. We talked to him about it. It was out over the weekend as well. Peter Coy, economics editor of Business Week. He is on the phone in New Jersey. Mike Regan is senior editor and lead blogger at the Bloomberg Markets Live blog in our interactive broker studio, along with Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Mike, let's start with you. It's bad. Yeah, it's uh, very bad. I mean, looking at an almost 8% drop in the S&P 500 right now, about 7.7%. And the energy uh, industry complex just absolutely uh, destroyed uh, S&P 500 energy companies as a group. Today alone are down 18%. That's the biggest drop for them in history. Obviously, it's all a result of what appears to be a, a price war going on in, in the global energy industry uh, world with uh, Saudi Arabia slashing prices dramatically over the weekend. Um, and really, no bright spots in the equity market. Pretty much every industry group is down. It's, it's just triggered massive uh, risk-off moves throughout the markets. Uh, really a, a historic day in the stock market. And, and Peter, you were kind of uh, all over this on Friday when you wrote your column about how the U.S. may already be in recession. Uh, can you bring it up to speed today and, and <laughs> tell us how you feel about it today? Is it no longer May? <laughs> right. Well, it's looking more and more likely, yeah. I, I mean, if the chain of events is you have markets uh, priced for perfection at the beginning of the year, and the coronavirus hits, and it takes a while for people to wrap their minds around it. But one thing it does do is start to make people think that oil demand is going to be lower. So oil prices come under pressure. Russia refuses to go along with Saudi Arabia's requests to pull back on production. So what happened now, that this is the trigger for today's uh, carnage. The Saudis said, look, we're going to call your bluff, and we have lower production prices than you do. We're going to step up our production crash the price of oil, and that will force you, Russia, back to the table. And what's happening now is that there's enormous collateral damage from this, because, first of all, it's wiping out the shale sector in the U.S., which cannot tolerate these low prices. A lot of these shale companies are highly leveraged. They shouldn't be, but they are. And so they're going to be going into default. So any, in any, any energy credit that was a triple B minus or something, you know, barely investment grade, it's going to fall out of investment grade, no longer be eligible to be owned by the, uh, the firms, the funds that own only investment grade stuff. And yet there's no junk bond buyers are willing up to, to step up and buy. So that's, right. that's where the cards is coming from. All right. So, Mike Regan, uh, what are you hearing from investors? Is there real fear? Is it uncertainty? Is it all of the above? Like, what are people saying as you talk to them on the street? It, it, the uncertainty is just overwhelming. I mean, when you see so many companies simply withdraw their earnings guidance, uh, not reduce it or say, you know, uh, we're going to make 10% less than we thought, but simply just say, we don't know. We withdraw don't know. completely. It's just a very unnerving thing. Uh, Lizanne Saunders was on TV earlier saying, you know, both the P and the E are in free fall right now. So it's just a, a, a you know, very unique and disturbing situation. I think right now the, the big uh, expectation is that the government, uh, Congress, will get together and come up with some sort of massive spending package uh, to try to stop the bleeding. That's the hope anyway. 
That said, you know, there's a big question of what, you know, what exactly can they do? How quickly can they get it done? Will it be enough to sort of stop this uh, snowball from rolling down the hill that's happening in markets right now? And well, what's the help that companies need? Because I feel like you've got small business, which aren't in the markets, right. but maybe they're a supplier to a big publicly held company. You know, you've got consumers trying to figure out some of them who have no safety nets if they can't go to work. Right. So I do wonder, like, what what is the right panacea from Washington that makes a difference? Well, that's the thing. I don't think there is one. I don't think there's a panacea. I think it's just how can you sort of stem the damage uh, as best you can. And you're right. There's, you know, it's whether it be in the corporate bond market, it's going to need propping up the consumer if there are sort of a, a lot of furloughs all of a sudden. Right. Um, you know, at the same time, the government ha- has to try to stop the spread of this thing. So it's fighting sort of a, a war on two or three different fronts right here. Um, and, uh, you know, the market is expecting something, even if it's not uh, right. enough to really stop what we're seeing, at least to slow it down. Uh you know, sort of get a floor under this market, but um, well, Not it's yet. just a wait and see game at the moment. <laughs> do, you, yeah. do you think Powell wishes he could walk back last week's cut? I doubt it. Um, you know, I think he's going to be doing another one soon uh, by by the next meeting, uh, if not before. So, um, I, you know, it, there's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking going on about whether they should have waited. I don't think it certainly would have helped if he had waited on that cut. Um, P- Peter, that's your world economics. What are you seeing in terms of Fed and Fed policy? No, I, I think that the, it was the right thing to cut then. And unfortunately, that's when you're that close to the zero lower bound, you just don't have that much ammunition left. That's uh, just a feature of the economy we're in now, not the fault of Jay Powell. Um, I would think that the Fed is going to do more than just cut. It's going to probably do a lot more forward guidance, maybe uh, new rounds of quantitative easing. I mean, it's going to basically... People are saying this is not the time to keep your powder dry. This is the time to come in and and, and put put all your firepower to work to help this economy. So, Joel Weber, as you put together this week's magazine, what are you seeing come in that gives you sort of a broader sense of this story? I mean, we've been pretty proactive in trying to to own as many different angles of the coronavirus story as we can. But then this weekend, I mean, the thing that I think you know everyone was like, "Oh my goodness," was the oil. Yeah. Knife fight, effectively. <laughs> I think it's a knife fight. If you look at it through that lens, it's like everyone wants to get back at Texas and the U.S. and shale for upending everything. It, but even to the point that OPEC plus unravels and you've got Russia and MBS in a knife fight now. So it just feels like full on knife fight. And these are not people that I really want to get in knife fights with. Right. And I think it does raise the specter of this being a bigger geopolitical issue than just uh, who's pumping how much oil. Yeah. I mean, I think it just feels like a very tense geopolitical moment that uh, relationships could start to sour over this, and, and oil might just be the, the start of our worries. Well, we talked at the top about how China benefits by these lower oil prices, and we do know, you know, China has certainly, in terms of its alliances, we've seen it moving closer to the Middle East and Russia as well. Well, and Peter Coy, at a time, just 30 seconds left, when you've got a lot of people, big voices calling for global coordination. How likely does that seem? I. Uh, Central banks uh, are, can coordinate. For one thing, uh, if if one bank cuts and another doesn't, then the, the bank in the country that doesn't cut is at a serious disadvantage yeah. because their currency starts to appreciate, their their current account deficit widens, and their their economy weakens. So 
if for no other reason than self-preservation, I think you're going to see coordinated central bank rate cuts. All right. A lot of phone calls happening around the world, for sure. Thank you all so much. Peter Coy, Economic Center for Business Week, joining us on the phone. Mike Regan uh, from Bloomberg Markets here in our studio alongside Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Got to say, Jason, last night when I was watching what was going on in the markets, I did the short list of people I wanted to talk to, and this next guest was on that list. Dr. Robert Schiller is Sterling Professor of Economics at Yale University. We've been talking a lot about his recent book that was published last year, Narrative Economics, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. He joins us right now on the phone. Professor Schiller, it is great to have you here. How do you see what's going on in the markets right now? Hi, Carol. I think that what's going on has an obvious connection to certain facts that have come up. Uh, one of them, notably, is that we have a new virus that is contagious early before, uh, before it's detectable or diagnosable. So it's hard to quarantine people if you don't even know they have the disease. So it, it, it's a new problem. How do we contain this uh, kind of epidemic? The other thing is that people are seeing how much uh, international travel dominates uh, these days. So the epidemic has, uh, you've seen these uh, maps showing where it, where it's hit, what countries it's hit. It's practically everywhere. So we have a pandemic. Those facts have sunk in and have been augmented by people's experiences of going to a grocery store and finding that all of various products are completely sold out. Uh, so they know that something is big is going on, and it's scary. It's also a situation in which people think, I might even die. Right. This <laughs> is rare that it gets that bad. And so, Dr. Schiller, you know, when we speak of narratives, the narrative of the market today seems to be a, partially about the coronavirus, of course, but also about the oil market. How do you synthesize those two things into one story? How connected are they, or are there just two things that are really weighing on this market? I think they're connected. People are traveling less. They're canceling uh, international flights. So that obviously reduces the demand for oil. The oil futures market is really related to the pipeline We've got a lot of oil in the pipeline, so it's uh, relative to demand. So it's a natural connection to see that. Uh, it, it's, it Maybe in a sense it's reassuring. Low oil prices uh, benefit consumers. Uh, that's the plus side of this. But I don't think it can outweigh the, the panic from the, uh, from the uh, COVID-19 epidemic. So I think about your most recent book, and Bloomberg Businessweek magazine has made reference to it uh, over the last couple of weeks as we try to assess what's going on in this market environment. How can that potentially help us in kind of figuring out what this means for the economy going forward? We were talking about Peter Coy has a story that says, well, the U.S. may already be in a, in a recession. How can that kind of help us figure out where do we go from here and how quickly we can recover from it? Yeah, you have to. Uh, my book, Narrative Economics, was about the power of narratives, mm -hmm. which are contagious like diseases. You know, I had no idea that uh, the coronavirus was coming when I wrote the book, <laughs> but here it is, and it shows the power of contagion. 
often uh, crises appear seemingly out of nowhere. Disease crises. Why? Because somebody killed a bat in China, okay, and ate it, or something like that. Right. Because uh, some uh, very modest beginning explodes into a worldwide catastrophe because of contagion. And that's, that's what people are d- rediscovering right now. I like to talk about it in my book because we, we have not just disease contagion, but we have idea contagion, or spread by narratives, by talk. Most people don't uh, t- talk about economics, except indirectly through stories. And this, the story of this epidemic and its effect on business is extremely powerful. Well, and it also feels like the story is so powerful in part because of the lack of information or lack of trustworthy uh, information. I believe this is something you've talked about. I mean, that that affects the narrative ultimately, right? The the notion that we're having a hard time finding things to really hang on to to create a cohesive narrative. The problem with the narrative is that you have to develop, if it's a damaging narrative like this one, you have to develop a counter-narrative, something else that has to be contagious. And uh, right now we see uh, contagious stories about President Trump's tweets, mm. and that doesn't help. Right. I think we need, we need narratives about heroic efforts to, uh, to control the epidemic. So if I can just quickly ask, you just got about a minute and a half left here. Recession, are we in one? Are we headed for one? Well, we'll find out from the NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research, the recession date. They're, they're slow to, to announce that. But I would guess that we're about in one. Uh, it, uh, people are really pulling back. Yeah. It, you know, remember Roosevelt in 1933 said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. We're seeing a lot of fear right now. And just have about a minute left here because the cover of Business Week magazine last week was Larry Kudlow, the you know ultimate optimist within the White House, and questioning whether or not the administration will come up with the right economic policies that are needed in this crisis. Just got about 50 seconds here. What are the right economic policies in your view? Are you concerned that Washington misses it? Just quickly. Well, first of all, uh, we, we need uh, a serious response to things like the shortage of testing kits Mm -hmm. or uh, plans for how we're going to quarantine a large number of people. Right. And so we need that kind of leadership uh, rather intensely right now. On top of that, there's also opportunities for fiscal and monetary policy. Obviously, those are things that have helped in the past. Right. And they can help again. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. As Carol said, uh, one of the voices that we really needed and wanted to hear from on a day like this. Dr. Robert Schiller is the Sterling Professor of Economics at Yale University, a Nobel laureate, of course, the author of many books, most pointedly and most recently, Narrative Economics. We really appreciate his time. Spot on. And as he said, couldn't be more timely. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly.
on Bloomberg Radio. One of the people, we've been talking a lot about this, like who do we want to talk to that can make us smarter about everything that's happening in the world? This guy is on that list for sure. He has been our Sherpa of sorts through U.S.-China trade and now certainly an understanding of the coronavirus, (laughs) its impact, so many things. Andy Brown back with us, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So... Here we are. We are weeks now, a few months uh, into this coronavirus crisis in many ways. What have we learned? What can we learn from China? Well, well first of all, thank you for that very generous wind up. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so the lessons. I mean, this is the ultimate test of political systems. And we've all been waiting to see which system is going to perform the best. Is it the Chinese authoritarian top-down model or is it the Western liberal democratic model? And on the available evidence, it is not at all clear that the Western democratic model has been superior in dealing with this crisis. In fact, there's quite a lot of evidence to support that the Chinese outcomes may be better. You actually wrote in your column this week that the Chinese have bought the rest of the world some time because of some of the steps that they took, correct? Right, so there was a lot of skepticism, as you recall, right at the beginning. Are the Chinese overreacting, locking down 60 million people, and then it was several hundred million people who couldn't move around the country. It turns out, actually, that that measure may well have bought two to three weeks of precious time for the rest of the world to get their act together, time, I might say, that in some countries has been completely squandered. And so I want to ask you, before we get too far, about Taiwan, because you mentioned that uh, when you first came into the studio, a country, a place that may have done better than expected. Right. This this is a very underreported story. I mean, Taiwan was probably more at risk from the coronavirus coming out of China than any other economy in the world and has probably... Why? Start there. Okay. Number one, 850,000 Taiwanese people live on the mainland. 400,000 Taiwanese people work on the mainland. Last year, there were 2.7 million Chinese visitors came over to Taiwan. I mean, crisscrossing... Location, right? They're just... Right, and so you would have thought that that you know if any country was gonna re- was gonna really suffer, it would be Ta- it would be Taiwan. Twenty three million people. In fact, it has been least scathed of any of Chinese neighbors. I mean, they've only had a few do- of Chinese neighbors. They only had a few dozen so cases. Why, one Andy? Combination combination of factors. The, the first thing is real really key is they understood the risk. Okay, mm. so mm. you know I, I mean this may, may may seem intuitive, but but when one looks at what's been happening in the United States is clearly not intuitive. The reason that they, and not just Taiwan, but also Hong Kong and Singapore and a few other places in in East Asia were able to understand the risk is because of the experience they had in the early 2000s with SARS. Mm. So they they saw this freight train, you know, coming towards them and jumped out of the way. The the government in Taiwan reactivated the command center uh, that they had used uh, in in, in SARS. They used uh, technology and big data very intelligently. They linked their healthcare system with their immigration databases so that they were able to screen and monitor, you know, potential carriers and, you know, look, look make sure that they were following quarantine uh, directions and so on. But I think, I think re- really, really important politicians and social groups set aside their differences and worked mm. together. And this may be the biggest lesson from Taiwan, which is that you can't tackle this coronavirus without a healthy society. Well, is there something to be said for those nations that had to deal with 
SARS in the past that they understand what can happen very quickly, and maybe that's where we're at a little bit of a disadvantage? Right. So, so they'd seen this before, and they didn't panic, right? So, you know, what you've had um, out of the Trump administration has been, you know, Trump is not wanting to spread panic. That's good. I mean, you don't want panic. But you have to combine that with decisive government action. Right. And the public has to also know, and this is the other thing in Taiwan, you know, individuals need to take responsibility for their own actions in order to promote public welfare and the common good. And that has occurred more readily in society that had been through the trauma of SARS. Well, it's interesting, can I just say, because Bob Schiller was just on with us, and he said, you know, what's going on right now, we talked about kind of the narrative or narrative economics, that, you know, people know something big is going on, and there's also this fear that people understand that they can die. And so there's, we're not kind of managing that well. Right, exactly. And, and, and you see from, from the Taiwan case where you had early intervention, smart government, decisive political action, and a society that works together, you've only had, I think, one death and, and, and a few dozen infections Remarkable. where you might have expected literally hundreds of thousands or a substantial portion of the population. So in a sense, the Taiwan example gives us all hope. Yeah. All right, so this is a very difficult question to answer in 30 seconds, but I'm going to ask you anyway because, you know, I <laughs> guess you on. as like one of our uh, great experts. What does this tell us about the new economy? You know, it tells us that um, we often assume that our political models, our social models, our technologies are the best. And in fact, there is an awful lot that we can learn from the new economies. Ideology actually wasn't important, particularly in, in, in the response to coronavirus. What mattered was political decisiveness and technology. Uh, new economies are very, very quick uh, to embrace technologies and to put it good, to good use. And we've seen that vividly in the coronavirus case. All right. I, I think he proved my Love point. That. He proved my point. All right. He's our Sherpa. Guy's amazing. All right. He's our Sherpa. <laughs> Andy Brown, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, we've been talking throughout the show, and hat tip to our producer Paul Brennan for lining this all up. That these are the days where we just want to talk to the smartest people we know. Yes. And certainly our next guest fits that bill. She is Hillary Kramer, President, Chief Investment Officer of ANG Capital Research, also the author of Game Changer Investing, How to Profit from Tomorrow's Billion Dollar Trends. I have a copy. It's inscribed. It's lovely. Uh, she's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Hi. Hi. <laughs> All right. So here we are. Uh, as Carol Master is fond of saying, whoa uh, This has been quite a couple weeks, certainly quite a day today. Put today in context for us. This is the day that it unwinds because you have all of these large funds 
that that hit that number and had to start selling. You have so many mandates out there. You have to be 10, 10% down, 15% down. And then uh, on top of that, obviously, there's something going on in the credit markets. Well, we know that for sure. Um, we've seen what we call the spreads blowing out between right. the treasuries and uh, especially the junk bonds. Corporate bonds have actually held in there pretty well. The bottom line is this. Uh, there's real damage being done to the economy. Okay, this is, that's, the, that's my by concern the by this coronavirus. My concern are these big capital intensive projects. Is Royal Caribbean canceling two new ships that they're building? You know, is Boeing just free falling? One of my favorite companies, by the way, is Boeing free falling because they are like desperately trying to keep um, airlines from canceling. Probably wouldn't be the military as much, but uh, so that's where it's an issue. Are there going to be restaurants that are going to that are going to go into bankruptcy? So real damage or big damage being done to the economy, um, or both? Real, <laughs> but like I'd say, real damage where it might be harder to come back. That's, well, that's the problem. That's what I think is an interesting junk, like thing that we should be discussing, right? Because. Do we kind of get through this and hopefully sooner rather than later and then we're like, okay, we, we, can, we can put an end to it. We understand there's less cases and so on and so forth. And then we can think about getting back to our daily lives, right? Mm-hmm. And things bounce back quickly. But I do wonder what's the point where it's not so easy to come back from. Exactly. That's, Carol, that's exactly what I'm saying. Right. So, so where do these projects get canceled? Where do companies that were on the verge of an IPO, they just never get to that window again to jump through and go public? Uh, companies that you know, needed to do another round of financing. The, the, other, the other kind of interesting point, though, is when it comes to the staples, the staples, the, I always talk about Hormel, HRL, yeah. that spam and uh and and skippy peanut butter you know where i I talk general mills you know these are three percent plus dividend yielding companies you know people are still going to have their cheerios and 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 their gold medal flour and their hamburger helper so we still have those companies that are going to do fine and they're going to come back anyone who has doesn't have a financing issue that doesn't have to refinance debt and even i'll tell you Everyone's going to be looking for, at this point, for the yield, right? They're going to be looking for those dividends, which is why even though utilities are kind of expensive still, we're going to see, we're going to see, yeah, everyone kind of going towards those. But you don't want to be in anything that, you know, has to, has to refinance or that, you know, could have, like, that has an ugly balance sheet. Um, At the same time, we got to think about the banks, right? Like, Maybe you want context for today? Yeah. You know, J.P. Morgan down 12%, and it's not because Jamie Dimon had heart surgery. Okay, I mean... So what do you worry about with the banks here? Okay, so the market tells us, what everyone needs to know is that the stock market is telling us what's going on. It always tells us and knows ahead of what we know. So... Something is happening in the banking sector, and it's not just this like net interest margin that we always talk about right. when rates go down uh, and, and the banks can't make as much margin, right? But there's something else happening there now, and we don't necessarily know exactly what it is. Is it? And, and, and a lot of the debt, though, they have, you know, they have sold off to 
insurance companies, endowments, pension funds. Uh, so are but, they at risk, potentially? But so, Who's at risk? Oh, well, it always comes down to the pension funds. You know, anyone who thinks that their pension and this is an unpopular thing to say, but that their pension is written in stone, including city employees, it's not. Yeah. It's not if there just isn't the money there. Right. And so that's what's such a shame. You know, when we talk about kind of all this new money that's been created out of Silicon Valley, it it's the where has it come from? What's been financing it? And I think so many people don't realize it's coming from us, right? The royal us, the royal we are putting that money in. And Hillary, are, yes, the bond market and the equity markets, because I hear what you say about the equity markets, you know, they're telling us something they're leading, but I really feel like the bond market is always, or credit markets are really often out there in front. Are they telling the same story finally? Yes, yes, with this, with this, with this uh, blowing out of these, uh, the the blowing out of the margins between the U.S. Treasury and and junk bonds. I mean, Finner, the junk Finner, bonds are I, the junk bonds are looking really, really bad now. There's That's, a headline: Finra saying banks may need to alter. Uh, oh. Trader supervision because of the virus, and we keep oh. talking about this about traders maybe the being, mechanics basically yeah, right? of how banks do business in this. I mean, you worked on Wall Street, uh, you understand this as well as anyone. I mean, the day-to-day operations I think is such a fascinating element of this, right, Hillary? In the sense that the financial crisis is one thing; yeah. it is a financial crisis, and there are certain things that the Fed can do. There are certain things that regulators can do. Part of this is human behavior. Right. And changing yes. the way people do their jobs. Okay, yes. And so what we need to think about, there's 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 two worlds. One world is we will get through this and the market will start going back up. Right. That will happen. And anyone who's like tempted to like sell it all right now, even if we go down another 10%, even if we go down another 20%, this isn't the time to be selling off because you're never going to time it right. You're going to get nervous and you're going to try to jump back in and then we're going to have another big drawdown retracement day. This isn't, yeah, you know, maybe if you had sold three weeks ago, but that's why you, know, you really can't, you can't you really time. can't time the market. Um, so that's, that's the good news, you know, that that's all coming back. Here's the bad news. Conferences. Okay, so conferences are canceled, and that's a big business. I and mean, this is just an example. So do companies decide, does Cisco, which hit a 52-week low today, does Cisco decide um, to have their conference next year when they canceled it this year? Right. I don't think so. I think that that is... Um, you know, these sort of well, boondoggles. Basically, this is going to be a good excuse and good reason for companies to to say, hey, we don't need to do this anymore and to set the precedent. It's very expensive, but it always serves the interest in everyone from the administration to sales to mm. management. Everyone loves these sort of conferences and opportunities, whether it's for you know, right. sales purposes or just internal purposes. So that's going to be a problem. How's their Ritz-Carlton Naples or how is uh, New Orleans going to do? And, and there's some, things, there's some yeah. things that may just not be rescheduled, not happen. I heard Dana Telsey, she was on surveillance oh, this morning talking about great. the yeah, retail. She's fabulous. She's talking about retail and talking about it being a lost year. That you just ultimately, there are things that you're just never going to get back, you know, and people who maybe were going to take a trip, well, they can't take it later in the year. It's, you're just not going to get exactly, this exactly or a conference south by southwest are they going to reschedule it i heard that they may not actually do the conference next year which was kind of interesting that was a very odd wow. headline yeah um, there's a lot of dueling uh 
versions of that in some ways because I heard that they were hoping that they could reschedule it for later in the year. Uh, I also heard that they may not do it at all. The Milken Conference supposed to happen the first week, last week in April, first week of May. That's been postponed to July for now. And right. then it'll get, then the well, Allen and Company conference will right. get in the way so, of it, and then something is going to have to get moved. What are you moved. doing? Because I do wonder if we're all going to look at, back at this mm-hmm. in six months and say, man, that was a great buying opportunity. Oh, of course we so, will. So what, <laughs> what are you doing? What are your clients asking mm-hmm. you to do? Are you buying names? Yes, yes. What we, are you buying? We are buying. We are buying these staples, right? So we're buying the Smuckers, and we're buying, as I said, the General Mills, the Hormel. We love PSA, which is uh, that's public storage. So take a look at public storage. PSA, yeah. The dividend yield there. What is it? It's about two hundred twenty-four dollars, and the dividend yield is about three point six percent. That's the largest yeah. self-storage company in the country. Still up six okay. percent this yeah. year. So why is that important? Thirty-nine billion market cap it's a great company I actually worked on the private placement of it in 1986 so I have a kind of an intimate you know love for this company and have seen it it's where we all all store that stuff that we really don't need is that what that is yes so when people have to downsize they store their things but even if the market comes back and it's good everyone accumulates stuff and they and that and they'll pay the money to go into storage but again the downsizing and then of course you have the whole baby boomer um the, the baby boomer kind of you know um evolution yeah. which is uh going to um smaller condos townhouses right. and but they don't want to let go of the of De-su- the things. de-suburbanizing right they're right. sort of going right. into the and city and i bet or... you that all those public storage psa is filled with records with album like who right. the who bruce springsteen and uh and maybe boxes some hair. of like their kids report so, cards from the 80s exactly <laughs> so wait i want to ask that's you right. would you buy a carnival that's just getting decimated what would you? I, it's I, down fifty-seven percent this year. No, I would not. I would not be buying right here. There's just no way because again, it's going to take time for the reputation to come back for people to stop being fearful. You know, you hope that a new culture isn't formed where we're all like just fist bumping and kind of like right keeping separate from what, each other. So, what about so, an Expedia down twenty percent right now? I wouldn't go for Expedia, but I would go for United Airlines and American Airlines. Now, United wasn't down that much as of Friday. You know, today, right. uh, I mean, it, it, it's actually had a resiliency. If you down think, 9% today, United. Which is not bad, considering the fact that I came back from Florida and three, it's I think three flights. This is what I, my impression was that three flights were combined into one last mm. week. It's down 46% this yeah. year. I'll, I'll tell you though, baseball, uh, preseason baseball, packed. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. interesting. It was, yeah. Everyone was still there. There are some people that, I mean, you know, the, the bigger problem, it's not that the coronavirus, this is a great, you know, more great news. The coronavirus is not going to kill us all. And probably the mortality rate is much lower than we know because we only know the people that die. We don't know how many people have gotten it right. and thought it was just a cold or a bronchitis or a sinus infection. Well, we joke that there are many, many people we know who've had it and it's gone. Right. Yes. You probably didn't even know. Right. And never knew it. Right. And that's that's what's kind of interesting so, here. What else are you buying? I know are you selling anything? Or no, you're not selling because this we're, is we're not we're not selling. Uh, we are looking to do options. You know, we do options okay. on ETFs, but that's a whole other kind of 
another a whole other kind of game out there we do like some of the companies you know flowers foods is so depressed right now that is the maker of wonder bread and dave's killer bread oh, I love and killer when bread. you look at that you think to yourself and actually i just bought it to do a four percent this year okay well it, it had really fallen i mean it had, yeah. it had a terrible year last year but you have this right. 3.35 percent dividend yield uh and they, they, they've done the right thing. They have the Wonder Bread for one group, and then they have this Day's Killer Organic Bread yep. that has different levels of seeds in it from 22% down to 16, 14. I'm a Dave's Killer Bread I, guy. You like yeah. Dave's? That you like Dave's? I love Dave's. And look, he likes a lot of bread. Oh, <laughs> but it goes back to that. So Flowers Food is F-L-O, and there's upside there. And when also the market comes back, and when and when the credit markets open back up, you're going to see acquisitions. You're going to yeah. see companies come in, swoop down, and pick up on. these they're a kind of company. Yeah, and, and they're going to swoop down and they're going to pick up these kind of companies. What's, Everyone should have heart. This is fine. Everything will be fine. Is this no, the financial crisis in your view? Absolutely not, because it's not systemic in the sense that. And I understand that that there might be issues. Look, it might be the financial crisis in Europe. I mean, we yeah. don't really know. We already know, like, Barclays is sort of gone. So, But we don't know how bad Deutsche Bank what, and... Jason, what did you say about and, Deutsche Bank today in the news? Deutsche Bank's... Uh, market cap? Deutsche Bank's market cap is roughly equal to the compensation that they paid their workers last year. How crazy is that? Oh, they're not it's supposed like to 11, do that. There was... Oh, there's a there's an equation. It should be like, like, like 18 to 20 percent. Well, and it's probably because they've been so beaten up, they've right? They've been so beaten up. I Isn't know, that insane? I mean, the the sort of joke, the sort of tongue-in-cheek tweet that I saw about it was essentially that if everybody just put their salaries together, uh-huh. they could just buy the bank. They're not mm-hmm. going to do that. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Is there another name that you tell people to buy? Um, well, I love Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs ah. will come back. Goldman Sachs has the balance sheet. They're smart. You're they okay are... with all the executive changes? We keep doing story uh, know, after story I, after story. I know, but they they have invested in the top talent. I have no concern because if you think about it, it's Goldman Sachs rather than, you know, about a Wasserstein. You know, it's, it's not about one heroic kind of, right. you know, you it's know, about the firm. Legend. It's the firm. You're, yeah. You know, a person's a partner at Goldman Sachs versus what their name might be. Right. All so right. I, I think that you want to be in Goldman Sachs. If but I, we, if I but had to I, buy today, I'd buy Goldman Sachs right here. Down 10%. Was it 177? 173? Goldman Sachs. I mean, they are going to be, and, and if there's restructuring, they're going to be the first ones at the table, and they're going to take a piece right. of the credit. One of our one of our loyal listeners, watchers, is saying, we, we hear you, leadership to reduce the damage is needed with a coordinated plan. Do we need something from the government, though, in oh, order to get out of this in a in a better way, if you will? Well, and just got about 25 seconds. Is, uh, we need to see these temporary payroll taxes you know, some kind of payroll Exemption. tax cuts. Something uh, We need, right. Ordinarily, I wouldn't be on that, but that's what we need to kind of create a spark. Right. And, and then I think we're going to be fine. But everyone should know you'll have more money 10 years from now. All right. Just, and don't just buy rash. gold. And don't just buy gold. Don't buy gold. No. Buy gold men. That's what I heard from <laughs> uh, Hillary Craven. Uh, nicely done. Thank you. Kelly. President, CIO oh. of ANG Capital Research, her book, Game Changer Investing. <laughs> Thank you. How to Profit from Tomorrow's Billion Dollar Trends. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.